Turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 in this section that we've been studying. This is the second in a message that we introduced last time about wives and husbands in a distinctly Christian marriage. Harboring harmony in the home seems to be such an elusive prospect in the 21st century. With the culture seemingly crumbling all around us, we must ask the question, how can a family make their home a safe harbor? Of course, the only answer is to return to God's Word as we are opening our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. It's the only and sole solution to these perilous times. The only way that we can fulfill our God-ordained roles of being salt and light in a decadent culture is to fulfill our God-ordained duties as husbands and wives and children, parents. And only when we fulfill our roles as these in our greater community will we see change for God's glory because they'll see change in us. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, you can follow along as I read verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 4, just to capture the totality of this main section. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then turn also over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to to catch also this parallel epistle of Paul written to the believers in Colossae and in an incredible economy of words. 
This is what is said there similarly to Ephesians chapter 5. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As I said, with an incredible economy of words, the Apostle Paul outlines both for the Ephesians and for the Colossians how to harbor harmony in the home and how to bring that harmony to that safe harbor by allowing the Word of God to so impress our minds and to impact our thinking as we concentrate on doing what the Lord expects of us in the home. And I don't think we could do any better tonight than to concentrate on that very first phrase in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And what it says, of course, in Colossians 3, as we just read, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We're going to do that tonight. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday night, we'll talk about husbands loving their wives. So part one tonight, wives submitting to their husbands. And part two next time, husbands loving their wives. Very, very important instruction, as I said, given where we are in our culture. And I would say at the outset, before we can begin to understand the role relationship of a believing wife to her husband, I think we must first understand that many in the church today, of course outside the church to be sure, but many even inside the church, completely deny that a wife must submit herself to her husband in any way. Likewise, many also deny that a Christian husband is to lovingly lead his wife. He's, of course, obviously supposed to love her. Nobody denies that. But to lovingly lead her is not what that Christian marriage is to be all about. And this is commonly called, if you want a word for it, egalitarianism. I know that's a big word for some, but egalitarianism is what I just said that kind of Christian marriage where there, there are those who say, I do not believe that the Bible teaches that a wife should submit to her husband, and I do not believe that the Bible teaches that a man has the obligation from God to lead his wife. Love her, yes. Lead her, no. Why? Because they are supposed to be entirely equal. And that's where that word egalitarian comes from. And I think it would be well for us to define egalitarianism. And I want to do that. 
I want to give you, under this this command of, of Paul, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, two very important points underneath that command. And the first is to understand why people deny what it seems Scripture plainly teaches. And it is because of that particular concept of egalitarianism, and I think we need to define it. So that's the first sub-point under this heading of wives submitting themselves to their husbands, and it is this. We need to find out why they believe this. And so we need to define this term, this concept called egalitarianism. And it can be defined as this, that there is a belief that is taught even in the church, certainly it's outside the church, it's in the world, but even inside the house of God, there are those who believe that egalitarianism, defined this way, is what the Bible actually teaches. Egalitarianism can be defined as a belief that there is complete equality of the personhood of men and women. That is, both men and women share equal status before God because they are created in the image of God. So far, so good, of course. But further, they state that since this is true, there is absolutely no role relationship between men and women. Since we're equal before Christ, Christ died on the cross for our sins, and therefore since we are all in Christ, both men and women, uh, both slave and free, uh, rich and poor, uh, Christianity therefore makes all of these class distinctions be obliterated underneath that cross. And so they would say we're all one in Christ. They would often quote, for instance, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, verse 28, uh, there is now no longer any slave or free or any male or female. We're all one in Christ. And therefore, since we're equal, then there shouldn't be any role distinction No functional distinction in the marriage, including, of course, a Christian marriage. In other words, there cannot be any headship or leadership role for the man, and therefore no submission to that headship for the woman. They are to be virtually interchangeable in both their essence, being in Christ, and their role. And that's basically what egalitarianism is means. And as I said, I would agree that men and women share the same spiritual stature or status before God. That's clear. Galatians 3.28 says that. But I believe that they are nevertheless called by God to take on very different roles or functions in their relationships to God and to one another, just as Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 says here. And this particular belief that is opposed to egalitarianism is called complementarianism okay, or complementarity. And you might have seen some of those words being bandied about uh, and you have been at a loss to understand exactly what they mean. And egalitarianism would be that we're all one in Christ but we have no role distinctions. And complementarianism says, no, we're all equal in our status in Christ But there are indeed continuing role distinctions, role functions between the husband and his wife. There are beneficial distinctions between men and women. And by the way, one of the most important affirmations 
of what I would consider the proper biblically sanctioned teachings of the Word of God on these things, which means I'm a, I'm a complementarian, has been written in 1987 called the Danvers Statement. It was a document that was affirmed in Danvers, Massachusetts. That's why they call it the Danvers Statement. In 1987, it was sort of a convening of a number of uh, pastors, theologians, uh, writers who were meeting there, and they drafted and affirmed this statement called the Danvers Statement. And here's in part what it says, and I think it speaks very well to the idea of complementarianism, which I think is the biblical position. And it says this, in part, Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as a part of the created order and should find an echo in every heart. Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. In all of life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women so that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow a human authority into sin. Now, I touched on that last time, and essentially what this statement is saying is that complementarianism believes that these role distinctions are a part of the created order prior to the fall. Because egalitarians often will teach, especially even very respected egalitarians who are teaching and writing books and speaking at conferences and convening congresses on these matters because they believe that egalitarianism, properly and biblically so-called by them, would suggest that the reason why we're one in Christ with no status difference, and why there should be no role or functional difference between men and women is because of the fall of mankind. And if we were to treat these role distinctions in the way that we should, because they were a part of the curse, because they were a part of the fall, now that we are one in Christ, being regenerated by God, and now walking with Christ, there should be a complete obliteration of those role distinctions because that's a part of the curse on mankind. And therefore, we should say we're all one in Christ with no role distinctions because that's the way to erase the curse. That's a way to undo what Adam did for us. That's a basic definition of egalitarianism. And if you run across that particular uh, definition, and if you run across writing on the subject, or you hear teaching or preaching on the subject, you'll know what it means, and you'll be able to make up your own mind on the matter. And I say make up your own mind, because some of you might be saying, well, it's pretty easy to me, you're going to give us the complementarity view, you're going to teach us what that means, that's the biblical position, and we can uh, go home and not have to think about egalitarianism. Well, in a sense, yes, you could decide to do that, except some of these teachers who are egalitarians, are very persuasive. And they teach, and they preach, and they write, and they comment on Scripture. And when they do, and when you read books of theirs, and when you hear them speak, sometimes it sounds very, very plausible. It sounds very, very good, and very right, and very biblical. And you might be swayed to think, wait a minute, I've got to, 
I've got to rethink my position on the subject, and I have to ask myself the question, which is right? Is it egalitarianism, or is it complementarianism? Which is it? Which is the biblical position? Uh, there are major names and teachers and uh, Bible professors and theologians who are on both sides of this divide, and they keep writing books and answering each other, and they're all saying we're just trying to come to the place where we understand exactly what the Bible teaches by these things. And I would suggest that if you were to be a noble Berean, according to Acts 17, you would also examine the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Not just because your pastor says it, not just because you're swayed by a particular Bible teacher that you love and appreciate and respect, but that you should study the Scripture yourself to see whether or not the egalitarian position is the right one or the complementarian position is the right one. So I've given you a definition. Let me give you a second thing under this heading of wives submitting themselves to their husbands. Not just the definition of egalitarianism, but also the effects of it. The effects of egalitarianism. And the effects of egalitarianism, I think, from my vantage point, have been devastating. They've been very, very devastating. And whether you're talking about uh, so-called evangelical feminists, and these are the ones who would take the egalitarian position. They would, many of them, actually call themselves evangelical feminists. And they would claim that they are very conservative in many of their theological positions, and yet they would align themselves with others, including even radical feminists, about this position of egalitarianism. In other words, they might say, I'm very conservative on this or that or the other position as it relates to hermeneutics, uh, the science and art of Bible interpretation, and this view and that view, and I'm very conservative over here. But when it comes to the role relationship of men and women, I'm an egalitarian, and that's why I may not side with my radical feminist sisters on other views that they hold that I completely oppose because I'm a conservative, but on the issue of role relationships between men and women, I side with them. And these are what are called evangelical feminists. John Piper and Wayne Grudem have written a wonderful book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, actually edited by them uh, with many, many uh, authors in that very important volume. And in their, their edited book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they say this, Something immense is at stake. It is not merely a minor intramural squabble. It has important implications for marriage, singleness, and ministry, and thus for all of life and mission. That's a very important statement. And part of what they mean, I think, can be seen in the statement by a few of these evangelical feminists, particularly one, Virginia Mollencott who wrote in the liberal periodical, The Christian Century, back in 1984, these words, quote, now listen to this, I'm beginning to wonder whether indeed Christianity is patriarchal to its very core. That is, patriarchal, man-dominated. She says, if so, count me out. Some of us may be forced to leave Christianity in order to participate in Jesus' discipleship of equals. Now, I'm not sure how you leave Christianity if you're in, if you're truly in. But that's what she's saying. And even the late 
Clark Pinnock, who was for many years a conservative and then not so much, was very sympathetic to egalitarianism. And he says about Virginia Mollencott, apparently her commitment to feminism transcends her commitment even to Christian faith. Even though he himself was sympathetic to some of what she was talking about. And by the way, uh, the late Elizabeth Elliot, who some of you ladies were able to uh, discuss yesterday at the uh, brunch, her wonderful book, A Chance to Die, on the life of Amy Carmichael. Elizabeth Elliot contributed to that volume that I spoke about a moment ago from John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and she was citing Virginia Mollicott's speech at the Evangelical Women's Caucus in Washington, D.C. in November of 1975. And this is what she says, this egalitarian of such men and women, in her mind, quote, amounts to a thorough revision of the doctrines of creation, man, trinity, and the inspiration of scripture, and a reconstruction of religious history with the intent of purging each of these doctrines of what is called a patriarchal conspiracy against women, unquote. It's a very serious matter. And I wish it were enough for us for me to say, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 or Colossians chapter 3, and here the Bible says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, husbands, love your wives, and we teach the basic truth of what it means, and we pray and we go home and live out those ideals in the Christian marriage. But we can't, because there are those who are attacking these very things as we have historically understood them, that is the Christian church, and so we are arriving where we are. And what has resulted in these and other kinds of responses to biblical manhood and womanhood has been nothing other than what I've said before is the obliteration of role distinctions between the sexes and therefore a confusion and the, 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 the complete disarray we now see in so many Christian homes. Great devastation when men and women are functioning without their God-ordained roles. I mentioned to you that Danvers statement. Listen to it again in another place. We are convinced, we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our families, our churches, and the culture at large. That's true. And it is even regrettable that we must endeavor to answer the question, is the concept of a wife's submission truly biblical? I mean, it seems obvious. It seems obvious to all of us, or so it seems. But what we have to do is go back to our Bibles then and do our spade work and try to ask the question, is the wife biblically called by God to submit herself to her husband? Is that what the Bible really teaches so now, with egalitarianism in our minds, we, we know it's out there, we know some people are teaching it, let's talk about what we believe the Bible teaches, what I believe the Bible teaches. And I want to give you, since I gave you a definition of egalitarianism, I want to give you a definition of what I think biblical submission is. Okay? So here's a definition of biblical submission in the role relationship of men and women. If you look back at your Bible, at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Colossians 3.18, Paul commands that wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands. But what does he mean? Here's what he means. That particular word, submit, hupotasso, in the Greek text. Hupotasso means to line up underneath. Or 
to subject oneself underneath the authority and the care of another. In other words, it's, it's a sense in which you acknowledge that there is someone who has leadership, authority, dominion over you. You acknowledge that. So you define submission from a biblical perspective with the Greek word hupotasso firmly in your mind that you're lining up yourself underneath someone else. You're subjecting yourself underneath the authority of another. It is, according to John Piper's definition in that book on page 47, a disposition to yield to her husband's authority and an act of her will to follow his leadership. That's what submission is. Now, in a sense, hard to obey, but easy to understand. It is a disposition to yield to her husband's authority and an act of her will to follow his leadership. That's, in essence, what it is. Now, I know there are some things that submission is not. Let me give you at least a few of those, because I want you to to hear from me a very balanced perspective of what submission is and what it is not. Here's what submission is not. I don't believe that biblical submission includes putting your husband in the place of Christ himself. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what submission is. Now, you're to submit to your husband as to the Lord, but you're not to submit to your husband because he is the Lord, right? And some of you are very well aware. My wife is very well aware that I am not the Lord. Very, very well aware. God never asks you to submit yourself to your husband to the point where you are led into sin. And I think I gave last week the example of your husband saying to you, I want you to sign these IRS forms. Uh, You and I know they're fraudulent, but I want you to sign it because it's going to save us money. So because we file these joint returns, you have to put your name down here and say this is what we made this year. And if that's not true, you are not called by God, even if your husband were to say, now you need to submit to me on this, you say my obligation is more to Christ than it is to you, and I cannot lie, I cannot fraudulently say that something is true when it's not. That's not biblical submission. Here's another. Biblical submission does not mean that you, as a wife, are to be mindless, mindless, or intellectually stagnant, or that you cannot use your God-given mind to influence your husband. Not at all. Not at all. Women are are called to submit, as this text says, verse 22, and as they submit, I believe, because of God's design in this created order of women submitting to their husbands, they actually can become and do the most profound influencers of their husband. When you show him your godliness in submission, as has been said, and I think it's right, yes, man is the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. Here's another one. Submission does not mean that you are never to reprove your husband. That's not what biblical submission is all about. None of the one another's, by the way, of the New Testament, including the ones which speak of admonishing one another or reproving one another, are gender exclusive of of women. 
You know, you don't exclude women in these one another's of approving, of, 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 uh, of admonishing one another and of reproving one another simply because they're women. I mean, what man, biblically justified, can say, I don't need to hear that from you because you're a woman? <laughs> Amen. That's, that's an across-the-board one another, reproving one another, admonishing one another. You come humbly and, and reverently, of course, but you come nonetheless for the sake of helping your husband mature in the faith. Here's another one. Submission does not mean that you are to be shy and timid and fearful. That's not what biblical submission is. Now, you, you may be, in a sense, at times, wondering what the response is going to be, but if you live and cower in fear, the fear of reprisal, uh, you, 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 tend to, you end up ten, tending to be shy, uh, like a wallflower, uh, like a doormat. That's not what biblical submission is all about. You're trusting God. You're hoping in God that He will motivate you in your respect of your husband to nevertheless not be shy, not be timid. I mean, yes, you, you submit to your husband, but you submit to your husband best when you trust God the most. You submit to your husband best when you trust God the most. This brings joy and confidence, not timidity and fear. You remember last week when I mentioned on Sunday morning the idea of, of Abraham and Sarah and how Sarah called him Lord, called him Master. She, she acknowledged his headship, but she was also a person who was to stand with him and help him, but also not be a person who was shy and timid and who was fearful. And it says... If you do what she does, even when she obeyed him, she didn't do it out of fear. And if you don't do it in a frightening fear, then you are trusting God. And when you do that, it's biblical submission. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, with her example, you shall become her children if you do what she does. Here's another one. Submission does not equate to the belief that my husband is infallible. Now, I know... Some marriages might be that the husband would like for you to think that he's infallible and that he doesn't make mistakes. But no husband is perfect. When you submit yourself to your husband, you're not submitting to an infallible person. But you are submitting to an infallible God, even as you submit to a very fallible man. We can and do submit, don't we, to fallible government? Of course we do. We submit to fallible church leadership, and you can also submit yourself to a fallible husband. Here's another thing that submission is not. It does not mean that a woman is inherently less important than her husband. Not at all. Not at all. Ask your kids who is extremely important to them. And often you might hear the answer, even if it doesn't always wonderfully encourage the husband, right? Because mom's there. Mom's there. Mom's always been there. Mom's a rock. Mom's this granite of confidence and trust. Mom can be trusted. She's there. Submission doesn't mean that a woman is inherently less important than the husband. How can a woman be less important when all of us acknowledge that it's through women that we're born into this world? And that's always fascinated me. 
Because even as a young Christian, and as I've, my, as I've matured through the years, I've always had in my mind the sense that you males wouldn't even be around if it weren't for them. Think of that. I mean, even the Bible says that. 1 Corinthians 11. Write that passage down. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12. This is what it says. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, and we sort of you know puff off our chest and say, yes, uh, Adam was the one who named Eve. Adam was the one uh, for whom Eve came out of his body. And we sort of get a little cocky about that. And then the Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate in God. You see, there, there's an interconnectedness. Yes, it's true that the woman came from man. And we're going to talk about that a little later. But is it also not as equally true that every man finds his birth through women? Come on. That's not hard to figure out. I mean, those are a whole host of things that submission is not. And I wanted to give you that just because I think so often there are people, and even, I would say, honest Bible teachers and sincere Bible teachers who don't emphasize the concept of what submission is not enough, and they only and often define what submission is. Well, it's hupotasso. It's that you're supposed to line yourself up under the authority of your husband, and they talk a lot about that, and they often don't tell you what it isn't. And then when you see those overtures of imbalance, then people can be confused, very confused, about what submission is and what submission isn't. And by the way, Christ is our ultimate example of submission, isn't He? Ultimate example. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. Go over from Ephesians chapter 5 to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show you what the Bible talks about even regarding the subjection of the Son, the submission of the Son. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Here's Christ subjecting Himself to the Father. And so if Christ subjects Himself to the Father, then why would it be difficult to assume that a wife also should subject herself to her husband? Christ did it. That's what we ought to do. Now, I told you I was going to give you a biblical definition of submission. Let me give you a, a theological basis for submission. Now, you might not have thought about this. And I want to give you, in the remaining time that we have tonight, some proofs about this concept of headship and submission, and that it's not just related to the fall, right? That we sort of have to undo the fall, we have to undo the curse, and so all these things go away, and there's not any submission anymore, and there's not any headship anymore, because it's the reversing of the curse, and it's an undoing of the fall, and so we have these uh, equal ideas now that men and women are, are totally free, and, and uh, they have no role, relationships, or distinctions in the Christian marriage, and all you people 
that say that. You're just wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't even theologically ground itself in this idea of headship and submission. And I would say that's not true. And I'm going to give you about eight proofs that tell you that this concept of submission is clearly taught in our Bibles. And here's proof number one. Proof number one. I'm going to give you a big word, and I'm going to spell it for you so that you'll, you'll know it. And it's called the principle of male primogenitor. The principle of male primogenitor. Primogenitor. It's P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-U-R-E. Primogenitor. And I want you to turn all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This is going to be just like a little Bible study tonight that grounds theologically the concept of submission and headship in texts of the Bible. Okay? Not just Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18, but this concept of how males particularly take the headship role and females particularly take the submissive role. Okay? I'm going to ground this in biblical texts. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, 7. And here's what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And of course, when it says he formed the man, that Hebrew word is Adam, from which we derive that English word Adam. Avam. And it stands, by the way, not just for the idea of Adam himself, the first man, that was his name, that's what God called him, but also for mankind in general. Because Avam also stands for mankind in general. Okay? Now, there was a real man, and he was a historical man, and his name was Adam, but the idea of Avam means that it stands also for mankind in general. And if you look at verse 18, the Bible says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man, mankind, including Adam, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And that's very significant because the man, Adam himself, standing for mankind in general, males in general specifically, that they as males would have the responsibility as Adam did here to have a, a kind of a headship, a kind of leadership over even the animal kingdom, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. And you see maybe in your ESV Bible a marginal note there, or a reference that says Adam, and it says, standing for man, or of the man. There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And by the way, also in the Hebrew text, man has been called in Hebrew, ish, and woman, isha. Okay? They are, they are linked in the sense that they are both human beings. 
Adam as a human being had Eve as a human being coming from his rib, not from the animal kingdom. She is a human being. She's not to be treated like an animal. And this passage, I think, implies that because Adam was created first, he was to take on the leadership role in the family. And the Bible repeatedly makes this case of what we could call primogenitor, which means that the concept of the firstborn son in any generation of the human family has the task of leadership in that family for that generation, unless, of course, God chooses otherwise, like in the case that he did with Jacob and Esau, right? That firstborn son would have the leadership role of the family. He was in charge, unless God said otherwise. And repeatedly, you hear in the Old Testament that birthright belongs to the firstborn son, right? And that's what we call male primogenitor. And the New Testament supports the teaching of male primogenitor. That is, that women in general are to submit to men in general. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 11-14. You don't have to turn there, but listen to it. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not, do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. See, it's not female primogenitor, it's male primogenitor. And he says, does Paul, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And why? Why does he say this? And this little word for, that's in 1 Timothy 2, is that uh, explanatory gar. It's the Greek word gar. And it means this, for... I'm going to explain why a woman should not have authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For... Or because, I'm going to give you the reason, it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Why, why would Paul say that? Because he affirms male primogenitor. It is that man's role to lead. And Paul even goes on to say in that text, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I mean, beloved, verse 13 makes it clear that Adam is to be seen as the primogenitor, the leader, the head of Eve, and she is submitted to that headship. That's proof number one. Number two, number two, the principle we'll call it of male primacy. Male primacy. Look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Helper. That's a word that simply means one who's called alongside to assist the man. And that's the wife's role. That's the woman's role. Called alongside my husband. It's for the purpose designed by God to complete him, to suit his needs to correspond to his needs, to assist him in ruling of the created order. 1 Corinthians 11.9 says this, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but but woman for the man's sake. Now I can hear egalitarians right there. Now wait a minute, pal. Wait a minute, buster. Are you saying, is the Bible teaching us that man... Was, was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. That's that 
That's that patriarchal, chauvinistic teaching that you evangelical complementarians are always harping about. And my answer is, what does the Bible teach? It's right there. It's in the text. It's 1 Corinthians 11.9. And it said that man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And I would say to them, what's your interpretation of that? How do you take that? What does it mean? And not just what does it mean to you, but what does it mean if you weren't around? It means something objective, in other words. And someone can't just subjectively just, just dismiss it with the mere wave of the hand. Well, I don't believe it. I don't believe it teaches that. I mean, I know it's what it says. Well, you've you got to do better than that. And I'm not on the chauvinistic soapbox. I'm not saying, ah, because I'm a male and this is what it says, you've got to live by that. If I were a female, and I wouldn't be in this pulpit, but if I were, I'd say, that's what the Bible teaches then I want, I want to understand wonderfully how God has created me and what He wants from me. Because He's in charge, not me. Proof number three. Proof number three. First, male primogenitor. Secondly, male primacy. Let's call this the principle of male authority. Male authority. Look back at Genesis chapter 2 again. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's male authority. Look at verse 19. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. You see the authority that he has? And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what his name was. Verse 23, then the man said about this woman that was created for him, this helper, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's where those words come into play. The Hebrew words for woman, isha, and the man, ish, they sound alike. Adam was not born... Second, he was born first. And he had the responsibility to name all the animals even before the woman ever existed. And he was there given the responsibility to name even the woman. You say, there's that chauvinism coming into play again. No, it's just what the Bible teaches. It's just right here. And in the Old Testament, you often find that the one who named someone else implied that they had authority over that person. And the father of a household. I declare that so-and-so is named such-and-such. Because he had that right. He had that authority. And by the way, it's also interesting to note that all of this authority which Adam was expressing was before the fall. It's before the fall. You know how the egalitarians, I told you, say, yeah, we've got to reverse the curse. We've got to undo what Adam did. This is before the fall. See, this authority is happening before the fall of mankind. Proof number four. Proof number four. Not just primogenitor, not just primacy, not just authority, but the principle of male headship over the race. Male headship over the entire race. Look at chapter 3 of Genesis, beginning in verse 22. 
Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Did you notice that phrase in there? He sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And look at chapter 5, verse 2. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them, and named them what? Man. Adam. When they were created. It was the creation of man, Adam, and Eve, woman, but they were called what? Man. You say, well, that's mankind. Yes, but they were also called Adam, which is Adam, implying he's the head of the race. He's the head of the race. Remember Romans 5.12? That there was this one man who plunged the whole human race into sin, and his name was Eve. No. No, he plunged the whole human race into sin, and the guy that gets all the ink, and therefore all the responsibility, is Adam. If you want to talk about chronology, who sinned first? Who sinned first? Eve. And she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Now some would say, no, he sinned first because he let her do what she was doing. But the bottom line is, Adam, though the head of the race, defaulted in his responsibility to lead his wife accurately and well and lovingly and biblically following God's commands And he gets all the press. He plunged the whole human race into sin. Nowhere in our Bibles does it say, Eve plunged the whole human race into sin. Like it or not, Adam's the head of the race. And like it or not, he gets all the blame as well. As he should. He has to take the responsibility. He's the male head of the race. And by the way, That's why I think, both in tradition and history, that when a man and a woman came together as husband and wife, she took his last name. Because he's the head of the race. That's why I don't like these hyphenations today. Where it's this, we're egalitarians, and uh, uh, I've got to keep my maiden name, and I've got to put it inside uh, my husband's name, and so we'll do a hyphen and all of this. No, the man is the head over the race. And God was communicating that. Number five. Male primogenitor, male primacy, male authority, male headship over the race. And number five, let's call it the principle of male responsibility. The principle of male responsibility. I just alluded to that in terms of Adam taking on the responsibility of plunging the whole human race into sin. That's the negative. The positive, of course, God told him, work the garden, work the garden, Even after the fall, you're going to work, but now you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow, right? He's the head of the race. Work the garden. Be responsible. Now it's going to be so much harder on you to do that, but he's still in charge. Genesis chapter 2. It's very, very clear. 
Verse 15, I read it a moment ago. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, told him to work it, keep it. He commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the creation of Eve, and then God joining them together. Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Unfortunately, chapter 3, verse 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He called to the man. He called him to his responsibility, right? Adam, where are you? What have you done? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And in the massively important response, and the sad, tragic response, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate which I think two things are happening there chiefly. Yes, Adam blamed the woman. There's no question about that, right? The woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. But who is he blaming ultimately? Now, there's no uh, bold or italics in the Hebrew text, but you can reasonably, I think, say that Adam was blaming even Yahweh God, the woman you gave me. So he's now, even though he's responsible the idea of male responsibility, he's shirking that responsibility and saying, yeah, I did that, but it's either your problem or her problem. And that's part of the curse of sin on mankind. Man doesn't want to take the responsibility that is clearly his. Number six. Number six. And I'm going through these quickly. I think you all would at least tacitly agree with me on these things. The principle, let's call it, of Adam's guilty state. Adam's guilty state. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And everywhere I said to you already, everywhere the Bible speaks explicitly of what happened in that garden event and who did what and why and what it meant for mankind, God says, Adam, Adam, Adam. Romans 5, 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and following. You look at Romans 5, 12. You look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and following. And there's your answer, Adam. He's the head of the race. He's the head of of mankind in general. He's the head of Eve in particular and he is responsible. 
as that head of the race. You have to be willing to take the hit. You know, I've often said to women who have been to me for counseling and have said what they have about submission and the struggle of it and the duty of it and the difficulty of it. And I've often said to them, I know it can be a struggle. I know it can be a difficulty. I know it can be hard. But here's one thing you don't have to do. Lead. He has to do that. And even if he does not lead as he should, he's still responsible to lead and he will be held accountable by God in that leadership or lack of leadership, but he's still the leader and you don't have to take on that role. And, guess what? If you take on that role, because, pastor, he's not leading. If you take on that role, it is not your God-designed role and there will be failure because you're not designed for it. Now that doesn't say anything about the idea that he's got a superior mind, he's got a superior intellect, he's got a higher IQ quotient. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with even uh, giftedness per se. It has everything to do with how God has created him as the responsible being. And he must lead. And you can follow. Because you're following God. You're doing what God wants you to do. Principle number seven, or proof number seven. The principle of gender role continuity. Gender role continuity. What do I mean by that? Well, in Genesis 3, 18 and 19 that we read, even after the curse was given by God upon man, those those thorns, those thistles upon his work, the consequence of his sin did not remove his role as the leader of creation. So whether you're talking about before the fall, he's responsible to lead, or after the fall, he's still responsible to lead. Before the fall, he did it and could in perfection. After the fall, he does it with the sweat of his brow. Thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard. Hard work. Sweat. But he's still called by God to do it. He's still responsible to do it. Even with a woman. What's her responsibility? Childbearing. And before that time, and after that time... Nothing was reversed by the curse. Women are still the ones bearing children. And that's one thing that nobody will take away from you. Nobody can take away that role for you. That's your role. That's your God-ordained opportunity. And when He does that, even in the pain of that childbearing, you can still fulfill your God-ordained role because that's who you are. And for that man... You still must fulfill your God-ordained rule in leadership and in providing that, that sustenance, that materiality, even with the sweat of your brow, even in the thorns and the thistles. And finally, proof number eight. Proof number eight. The principle of redemption as creation affirmation. The principle of redemption as creation affirmation. You know, I hear this this siren sound of egalitarians saying, no, 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 it's the reverse of the curse. It's the undoing of the fall. But everywhere I look in my New Testament, I see creation reaffirmation. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament 
where as a result of the fall, things have cataclysmically changed and the men are now the submissive to the women. The men are now the childbearers. The women are the leaders and the women who are the ones who by the sweat of their brow and through thorns and thistles are the leaders and they make the decision. I don't see any reversal of those things. I don't see any reversal of those roles at all whatsoever. Genesis 3.28. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I don't see those things. I, I quoted for you 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And when this creation reaffirmation is mentioned, what God has created the roles to do functionally, it's men lead, men lead, men lead, 1 Timothy 2, men lead in the church, 1 Timothy 2, and for the wife... For the woman, she's childbearer. First Timothy 2. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but she shall what? She'll be involved in childbearing. If she has these godly qualities. Does it take away the sting of the curse? No. Women still have pain in childbearing. Do the men have this freedom in their leadership in the creation reaffirmation? No. They're still leading by the sweat of their brow. But they're still leading. And the women, if they have sanctity and with self-restraint and these godly principles and these godly characters, now what they do in this creation reaffirmation is you still have the same role and even with the remaining elements of sin in the world, including what Romans 8 says, is that the whole creation is continuing to groan until the redemption of the world, the redemption of our bodies... And those women will still have pain in childbearing, but they're still women, and they'll still have the role of childbearing. And even when they do it, they're going to do it by that pain in their childbearing. And when the men lead, they're going to lead, and they're going to do it. But when they do it, they're going to do it with the pain of what the leadership brings, which means sweat, misunderstanding, leadership that's heavy. And I often say, both to men and women, woman, it's not as though you have to lead. You don't have to do that. You're not designed for that. And when you are doing what your God-ordained role is in doing, you're going to see God's pleasure in that. Even if there are remaining sin issues in the world, even in your own heart, or even with the world itself. Man, you're going to lead, and when you do that, you've got the authority to do that, and you're also going to be under the pressure of that leadership. And are there at times women who crumble under the pressure of what childbearing means, including the raising of those children? Of course. And isn't it true for men under the pressure of that leadership? They sometimes crumble under that pressure because nobody has to lead but them? Yes. But it's still God-ordained roles. And it's still also the opportunity to show a watching world that men and women in these God-ordained roles can do, will do, should do what God has called them to do. Even in the midst of the pressure. Because you know what's there in both cases? Grace. God's grace. Grace for the crippling pressure of, pressure of male leadership. And grace for the crippling fear of the idea of pain, pain in life, for the women who not only bear children, but raise them and love them and care for them and work as a helper to that man 
who at times, even with the pressure of his leadership and with the sin of his heart, puts pressure on her, which sometimes can be very, very difficult. But grace is there for both. That's what I believe submission means. Next time, we'll talk about how men ought to love their wives. Let's pray. Father, there are so many more things to say, so many things left unsaid. What about this? What about the implications of that? What about the other? Well, I'm in a situation where there are men and women among us who say, well, I'm, I'm divorced. I, I'm single, never been married. Oh, I'm, I'm widowed. You're talking so much tonight about wives submitting to their husbands. My husband's deceased or divorced or I'm in a situation where that, that teaching doesn't fit me, doesn't apply. Father, you know all things. Holy Spirit, you know how to apply your word to the truth of the human heart of what women need to hear and how they can be blessed even if this is not their current station in life. And I pray that you would extend your grace even to them. Allow them to know of how you want to minister to them even though they're not in a current submissive role to a husband. Lord, I pray that you would even encourage them about what submission is in general in the other areas of their life that they are called upon to submit to to a landlord, to a government official, to a church leader, an elder, a deacon. Father, I pray that you would help all of us. Even the men who are supposed to submit, we submit to fellow elders, we submit to the government, we submit to a boss, an authority over us in the workplace. We, we too are called upon to involve ourselves in submission. But Father, for those tonight who are indeed in Christian marriages with a man who professes to know Jesus and they're, as a Christian family, trying to work their way through how the wife submits and how the husband loves, may you have encouraged women tonight about both what submission is and isn't and that you would affirm as a Christian wife male authority in the home with these proofs that seem to be so clear to us in the scripture both explicit and implicit and I pray that you would encourage these ladies who don't have to lead in such a way that it takes them out of their God-ordained role and provides even more pressure upon them. I pray you'd give them grace. Give them mercy, Father. And next week when we talk, Lord willing, about the men and their love of their wives, their seeking to love them unselfishly, may you convict their hearts as we prepare even our own hearts as men for next week's ministry of the Word. And give us much grace. 
and allow us now to bow in humble submission to the Lord Jesus Christ who subjected himself to you so that you might be all in all. May you give us much tender mercy for how we need to understand and apply these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.